Good afternoon. And welcome to the Inner Pratt Free Library. On behalf of our Chief Executive Officer, Carla Hayden, who is feeling under the weather this afternoon, I am Vivian Fisher, manager of the Pratt's African American Department. We are very pleased to have all of you here today as part of our Brown Lecture Series. These wonderful discussions and lectures are made possible by a generous gift from Eddie and Sylvia Brown Family Foundation. I am very excited for our, our lecture this afternoon. Our special guest is the author of the 2008 National Book Award for Nonfiction, The Hemmings of Monticello, Annette Gordon-Reed. The book was also named as one of the best books of 2008 by many critics, including the Washington Post. It is also my personal favorite. Now, before we get to our guest speaker, I would like to encourage all of you to pick up the latest copy of our Compass, the Pratt Library's news, uh, newsletter of events and programs, which if I can find it here, copy of the Compass. and visit our website at prattlibrary.org. I would like to showcase several specialty programs in the coming weeks. On Thursday, March 5th, in the main hall, we are welcoming PBS host and journalist Tavis Smiley. We'll be discussing his new book, Accountable Making America as Good as Its Promise. On March 10th, in our poll room, we'll have Baltimore's own Laura Lipman discussing her new book, Life Sentences. And mark your calendar on Saturday, April 18th, headlining our annual City Lit Festival is the 2008 Pulitzer Prize winner, Jeanne Diaz, an acclaimed poet, Elizabeth Alexander, who delivered a wonderful poem during the inauguration and swearing-in ceremony of President Barack Obama. So as you could see, we have a lot of great writers and poets coming to the Pratt. We hope you can join us again. Now back to this afternoon. To introduce our guest speaker today is someone we are proud to say is part of our Pratt Library family. Sherilyn Eiffel is a member of the Pratt Board of Directors and is a professor at the University of Maryland Law School. Professor Eiffel is nationally recognized as an advocate in the areas of civil rights, voting rights, judicial diversity, and judicial decision making. Professor Eiffel also writes about the history of racial violence and contemporary reconciliation efforts. Her book, On the Courthouse Lawn, Confronting the Legacy of Lynching in the 21st Century was released in 2007. And if you haven't had a chance to read it, you really need to purchase this book. So we are very pleased to have her today to, uh, and please welcome writer, professor, and good friend, Sherilyn Eiffel. Thank you, Vivian. Archbishop Desmond Tutu once said, 
The past refuses to lie down quietly. Our speaker today has been wrestling with one of the most persistent stories in our nation's past, one that has refused to lie down quietly. And rather than treat this story as a scurrilous rumor not capable of corroboration and irrelevant to the history not only of the man, Thomas Jefferson, but also of this country, Professor Annette Gordon-Reed has, with the intrepid courage and curiosity of a 19th century explorer, but with considerably more sensitivity, honesty, and respect for the landscape she surveys and the people she encounters along the way, she has become really the most unique scholar of slavery in our new century. Professor Gordon Reed and I were sharing earlier the great difficulties and the arduous work of engaging in legal history. The research is amazing, but we were also sharing the joy like explorers finding new treasures uh, along the way. Uh, and in this latest book, uh, it is just filled with treasures for those of you who have not had a chance to read it. She was born and raised in, I'm, am I pronouncing it right, Conroe, Texas? Uh, Conroe. Conroe, 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 Texas, uh, where she first learned about Thomas Jefferson after reading a, a book about him when she was a schoolgirl she um, became quite curious about TJ, and she joined the Book of the Month Club at age 14. Is this a true story? Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> she joined the Book of the Month Club at age 14, uh, concealing her age, so that she could read Fawn Brody's uh, biography of Thomas Jefferson um, uh, at an early age and to satisfy some of that curiosity. Many of you probably know her professional resume, that she graduated from Dartmouth College and that she attended uh, Harvard Law School, where she was a member of the Harvard Law Review several years before our current president became editor-in-chief, that she currently is a professor of history at Rutgers University and also a professor of law at New York Law School in New York. She's the author of three books and the editor of one, uh, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, uh, was her first book, um, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, An American Controversy. It was published in 1997 and is one of the most unique books I've ever read. It is the book for which she first should have received the National Book Award, I'll say it. Um, and, but the world wasn't ready uh, for what she was writing about. This book is unique because she writes about and explores how historians have written about and explored the story of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. It has uh, been described as a brilliant work. It is truly brilliant. It is groundbreaking. And it, perhaps as much as any of her other research, tells us so much about how race is experienced, understood, and articulated in American society. She also uh, wrote Vernon Can Read, a memoir uh, about a presidential confidant and civil rights leader Vernon Jordan. She edited the book Race on Trial, Law and Justice in American History. I think few people know that she was an, a counsel to the Corrections Department of the State of New York, is that correct? Uh, and knows quite a bit um, about criminal justice. The book uh, for which she's here today um, is the 2008 National Book Award uh, uh, recipient, The Hemingses of Monticello. It's an important book, and for those of you who've had a chance to at least begin it, it is quite a thick book, and you really have to take care with it. I found myself reading one paragraph, going back, saying, let me just catch that again. 
Uh, it, is, it is more than just a biography. It's not just an account of this family. It is an attempt to help us contextualize and understand slavery uh, as it existed in America and to understand America and its unique relationship with this institution, the, way, the ways in which this nation was formed, created, and managed in order to preserve the institution of slavery and the benefits that it gave for those who profited from it. It is also an attempt to give life, voice, and meaning to those whose stories have been untold. The stories of the Hemings family is just an example of the millions of families whose stories were not told, but it is exemplary of those millions, and it is an attempt to give voice to that story. My favorite quote from uh, Professor Gordon Reed uh, was given in an interview in which she was explaining perhaps why lawyers make great legal historians. And she said, and I'm quoting, the first thing you learn in law school is people are crazy. <laughs> They'll come into your office and explain their motivation and it will be totally a lie. They don't even understand themselves what their motivations are. It's not all going to fit. Uh, and I think that understanding is an important underpinning if you're going to engage in legal history, particularly legal history about race in America, because so often those who uh, are the actors in that legal history, and certainly the writers of it, don't even know what their own motivations are. So I present to you today a deeply insightful thinker, a tremendous researcher, a brilliant scholar who's made an enormous contribution to American history through her writing of this latest book, The Hemingses of Monticello. Please join me in welcoming Professor Annette Gordon-Reed. Thank you very much for that wonderful introduction. And that was a true story about joining the Book of the Month Club uh, when I was 14 years old and surprising my parents because we kept getting these books every month. I hadn't told them about this. And finally, uh, I explained what had happened. And they wrote to the Book of the Month Club and explained that I was a minor and that minors can't make contracts, obviously. So they stopped sending the books. But I got to keep my biography uh, of Jefferson. Um, also, I, I wanted to say I wrote with Mr. Jordan, Vernon can read, <laughs> Didn't mind it, just by myself, um, and uh, what a wonderful experience that was, too. I thought I would talk a little bit today about the book, um, a little bit how, why I wrote the book and how I came to write this book. As, as Sherilyn explained, this is a sort of an interest of longstanding of mine. Um, the book that she referred to that I read when I was in the third grade was a biography of Thomas Jefferson that was told uh, through um, the story of, of a slave boy, an enslaved boy whose name either wasn't given or I, I don't remember it. But what struck me about the book then was that the boy was portrayed as the opposite of everything Jefferson was supposed to be. Jefferson was brilliant, attractive, curious, wanted to learn about the world, interested in science, and the enslaved boy was portrayed as dull, uh, playful. He was exasperated with Mars Tom because Mars Tom always wanted to have his nose in a book when he, they could be out hunting or fishing or doing something. And I knew that this story, or I perceived at this time, that the person who was writing this book, and I can't say that this was a historian necessarily. This was one of those child biographies. It was a, uh, I don't, I wouldn't 
this person wasn't wasn't writing wasn't attempting to write a serious scholarly uh, story about Thomas Jefferson. It was basically something that was done to sort of teach young Americans how they should feel about the founders of their country, that these and have respect for them. Um, but I thought that the author of this book was telling was imparting a message. It was not just about Jefferson's life. It was about the boy. It was about what black people were supposed to be like. And so if you can imagine um, a third grader, I'm, um, I actually integrated our school district um, during this time period. They were still being recalcitrant. This is, you know, 10 or 11 years after Brown, and they were still looking for ways not to desegregate the schools, and my parents ended up sending me to the white school. And I had been there a couple of years when I discovered this particular book. So we're in my hometown was maybe... 10% black people, just a little bit fewer. So I was sort of, I was an extreme minority, and I'm reading this book that I knew that my classmates had access to as well. And I knew that it was forming not only their understanding about who Jefferson was, they were, it was forming their understanding about who black people were. And I'm a black person. I'm supposed to be that slave boy who doesn't want to learn, who doesn't, who is, who is stupid and incurious. So... It was hurtful to me, even as I was discovering a person who has remained a fascination to me up until this moment, I was seeing another thing, and that's about history, the way history is written, and the power of history, the, the hold that historians can have over the imagination of the country when they present a story in a particular way. It's not a neutral thing. It's, it's a very, very powerful thing, history is, and it's a very contentious thing as well. That's why there are different types of history written. There are battles within the historical profession, I'm sure that you've heard about, and it's contentious territory. And when you're talking about race, as she mentioned, it's very, very volatile uh, in the United States of America. So this was my introduction to two things. Number one, Jefferson as a person, but also in the really trickiness of, and the importance of the way people write history. And from that time, I was always very cognizant of seeing how black people were portrayed, not just when they're writing about Jefferson, but writing about history in general. Now, as years went on and I got to be older, I read a copy of my parents' book, White Over Black, by a man named Winthrop Jordan, which, which was a scholarly work, and it was, was a more balanced portrayal of Jefferson, and it was the first time I'd actually heard of the Hemingses, because, of course, all those childhood biographies didn't mention that. Actually, they mention it now but in very, very ambiguous ways. We can talk about that later on. But there was no trace of this in the kinds of biographies, the sort of age-appropriate biographies that I was reading um, before I got to, Fawn Bro to uh, Winthrop Jordan's book. Winthrop Jordan talked about Jefferson in a chapter called Thomas Jefferson's Self in Society, and he mentioned the Hemings family. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. I've had this, this interest in this particular person for you know, four or five years now, and now I find out this or this whole issue is, is raised in this book in a very, very balanced portrayal of it. Um, Jordan pronounced himself agnostic on the question whether or not Je Jefferson had a liaison with Sally Hemings. Um, and then there was a book, my Book of the Month Club adventure when I found out about Fawn Brody's book a couple of years later. And what fascinated me about that book, and I got every one of these things gives me a different piece of the puzzle as to how I'm, you know, the road to where I am right now, there were two recollections in the back of her book. 
Uh, one was by a man named Madison Hemings, who claimed to be the son of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, and another book by, excuse me, another recollection of a man named Israel Jefferson, whose real name is Israel Gillette. He appears in the book as Israel Gillette because that was his real family name. Jefferson was sort of appended to his name by someone else after, you know, after, the, after he uh, gained his freedom. Um, and Madison Hemings, as I said, said that he was the son of Thomas Jefferson, Sally Hemings, and Israel Jefferson, or Israel Gillette, corroborated this. And that was my first exposure to slave narratives. Uh, I knew about slavery, having gone up in Texas. Conroe, Texas is in East Texas. The nearest city to it would be Houston. But it was a, uh, it's in the, the midst of what they call the Piney Woods. Texas is a gigantic pine forest, the east part of Texas, and then it gradually recedes into desert. But this was plantation um, territory, also oil country, but before there was oil, there were, there were slaves <laughs> and um, cotton and, and timber and those kinds of things. And so I knew that slavery existed. I knew that my great-great-grandmother had been a slave as a little girl. Um, and so I understood that part of our history. Uh, but I had never thought about and never seen an actual narrative from a person who had been in slavery. And these two men had been in slavery. And what struck me about Madison Hemings's memoir was, recollection, was the notion that your master could be your father or your father could be your master. Your father could be your, your biological father but also own you as a piece of property. Now, of course, I knew that that happened as well. Again, because of my experiences, I would say most African Americans, if you go to an African American um, family reunion, uh, the people there will be all different colors, all different colors of the rainbow. So African Americans live with this notion of racial mixture just as a matter of course. We see it in our families. You could have siblings who are different colors, grandmothers, grandfathers who are different colors from their, from their grandchildren. And this is probably not something that is, I would imagine is prevalent in white families, but this is the kind of thing in terms of family reunions to, to see that kind of diversity of, of genetic, um, uh, sort of a genetic display in one family. So it's something that I knew, but this, these two recollections forced me to think about that in a way that I had not before. I kept up my interest in this topic, and I kept reading about um, Jefferson into college, and I was also on another track thinking about slavery as an institution. He, in a way, and thinking about Jefferson and Monticello was the introduction to my interest, scholarly interest, in slavery. I decided not to go to law school, excuse me, to go to, to uh, get a Ph.D. in history and instead went to law school, which I don't regret, which I think it was a wonderful uh, thing for me and wonderful preparation for the kind of, kind of work that I do. Um, and just kept up with the story of the Hemingses, primarily through reading, you know, any time a new Jefferson biography came out, I would sort of read about them and figure out, you know, what people, what was the current uh, thought about what people were saying. And... Uh, in 1994, I decided to, I actually, well, after I was reading some articles about a new movie that was coming out, Jefferson in Paris, um, and there was a lot of criticism about that movie even before it came out. I was actually kind of excited about it. Merchant and Ivory typically do pretty good work. You know, they do the research about the historical period and they get everything. So I thought, oh, this might be a, you know, a classy production or whatever. Um, but what I was seeing in papers was people, historians saying, 
you know, is it horrible that they're going to make this movie because Jefferson in Paris was going to treat the story of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings as true, as if it were fact. And people were saying, oh, isn't that awful? Uh, we know there's no evidence that this is true, and we know that Jefferson would never be involved with a slave girl. And I, there were two things, problems with that. <laughs> well, many problems, but first I fixated on the question of no evidence, um, and I knew that Madison Hemings and Israel Gillette had said that this was true. It doesn't prove that it was true, but it certainly should be considered evidence. Evidence is not proof, but it is it's something that goes into making proof. And I was a little offended because back to my, I was back, it was to, sort of took me back to the third grade when I was thinking about how black people are portrayed in the writing of history, the role that we play in American history. How could you have two people who made it out of slavery and tell you something happened during that time period, something that happened that was common, for it to be treated as if they had said nothing at all. It was like saying that Madison Hemings and Israel Gillette were the invisible men, Ralph, Ralph Ellison. They don't, they don't really count what they say, which is an odd thing because slavery, obviously blacks were involved in slavery too, right? I mean, the, the institution had an impact upon them. This is not just the story of you know Jefferson and his and his family and his legal white family or white Southerners, they were black. You know, black people were part of this as well. And typically, when you have a group of people who are oppressed, you don't spend all of your time listening to the people who oppress them describe these folks. You you have some sympathy. We're typically taught to have sympathy for, at least pay attention to the people who are the objects of the oppression, not just the people who are doing it. So it seemed to me to be the world turned upside down, that somehow Madison Hemings and Israel Gillette were the lying, mendacious slaves that we had to be wary of, and Jefferson and his family, or not even Jefferson, but the people who were, um, who were, who were you know, told an alternative story about this, they had nothing to hide, they were the reputable ones, and they were innocent. So it was everything turned upside down, and so that's how I ended up writing the first book. I thought I was going to sit down and do an op-ed piece about all of this, and it kept getting longer and longer. And I said, you know, I, it is a strange interest that I have. I, I concede that this is a strange thing, that uh, being interested in Monticello and slavery and Jefferson and all this stuff from the time you're a kid, okay, I face it, it's odd. Um, but I thought... Well, if you have this eccentric interest, you might as well use it. Put it to some use. And that's why I decided to write the book, which I didn't tell anybody I was going to write, So I, except my husband. Um, he knew I was disappearing somewhere every, every seven days a week to, to work on this thing. And I wrote the book, and I wrote, as, she, as Sherilyn explained, that it's about the historiography of Jefferson and Hemings. It's not the, the story, not about them. I mean, it is about them, but that's the main thing was to talk about how historians had written about it, because really, this has been something, as I think of it, that has sort of bugged me since the time I read that first book. How do historians write about black people when they're telling the story of black people's lives, in essence? And um, so I, I wrote that book, and um, it did very, very well. And as I was writing it, uh, a very close friend of mine, uh, Peter Onuf, who is the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Professor of History at, at the University of Virginia, who actually was instrumental in getting my book published at the University Press of Virginia, and was very, has been very encouraging to me, said, you know what you ought to do, Annette, is you ought to write a biography of Jefferson. 
which I am going to do, but he said, you should do that now. And I thought about it, and I said, well, to myself, before I undertake this, I would like to find out more about Monticello, but there's something else that I would like to do as well. Because it occurred to me that one of the reasons it was so easy to dismiss Madison Hemings and Israel Gillette and how easy it was to give Sally Hemings fathers to her children that, you know, just every other week a new person, the reason it was, do, it was able to do that is because people didn't know anything about them. I think it's easy, when you don't know something about a person, it's easy to believe things about them, it's easy to dismiss them, it's easy to believe things that other people say about them when you don't know them. And when you don't know a person or don't know anything about them, you have no stake in them. And when you have no stake, you know, anything is possible. And so I said, well, before I get to Jefferson, what I need to do is to, to sort of explain the Hemingses, to try to talk about the Hemingses in a way that they have not been talked about before, uh, to make them live as individual people. One of the difficulties, uh, one of the sort of, well, difficulties for writing about enslaved people, reading about them, is somewhat similar to the, to the issues that black Americans face today, is that enslaved people, black people, slash black people, are seen as a monolith. We are seen sociologically as a group of people not as individuals. And the group identity, which I, I'm not saying it's not important, it's quite important, uh, but it's important to everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. Sometimes it's important to, to focus in on the group, and sometimes it's important to focus in on individuals. And I thought now was the time to write about a group, a family of enslaved people as individuals, to tell America, to sort of get America to have a stake in them, and to have that stake by talking about them as people and not as a part of a group. And because I'd done so much work on the first book and all the stuff that I'd done over the years, I knew that Jefferson had lots of records um, about slavery at Monticello. He was an inveterate record keeper. He had a farm book. Now, lots of a farm book, which is sort of the record of the plantation, um, slaves on the plantation, family configurations, how much, you know, how many blankets he gave, all these kinds of things. This is not unique. Most slaveholders who, slavery was a business. And if it's a business, you have to take care of your inventory. You have to know about your inventory. And your inventory includes, in this instance, people. So there are other slaveholders who had farm books and kept those records, but he did too. But what he did, but what other slaveholders probably did not do as much, or I can say confidently they did not do as much, is to keep what we have called now memorandum books. Um, there are two volumes of them now that represent from the t Jefferson started from the time when he was in his 20s up until his death, when he was you know, 83 years old, of keeping a daily record of every expenditure he ever made, where he was, how much he spent, and, you know, for what purpose. So it's like you were to get up in the morning and you'd go and you'd buy the Baltimore Sun. All right, spent however much money for the Baltimore Sun in Baltimore and then bought a cup of coffee. That, I mean, he did this every day. Very odd, too. Uh, <laughs> he did this every day, but fortuitous because you can tell where he is any day. You can track his movements through the memorandum books and along with his um, 
along with his um, expenditures. The interesting thing about this, of course, is that he never totaled these things up. <laughs> right? So you have a record of everything you're spending, but you're not totaling them up. So you don't really have a sense of, this sounds like me, you know, I just put the money in the cash machine. Do you want a receipt? No, I'm just, just go on. Um, don't want to deal with that. Um, and so, as we will see, it, he doesn't come to a good end on that point. But so we have all of these records, and very often he's talking about Hemingses because a lot of the transactions involve members of the Hemings family. So from the memorandum, we have the farm book that talks about family configuration, memorandum books, um, his letters, uh, a garden book that he keeps. There's another book, garden books, purple hyacinth in bloom. I mean, every day lamb comes to table this day. You know, just lots of records of things um, that are very helpful to us now, as odd as it may seem that he would keep these kinds of records. So, and there was also the oral history, there's the, the history, the recollections of Madison Hemings, which are not properly characterized as oral history because he was actually alive at Monticello. Oral history usually refers to things that, it's family members down the way who are saying what happened to their great-great-grandparents, not the actual person. He actually was at Monticello and knew Jefferson just like Jefferson's grandchildren knew him. His, his story is no more oral history or whatever than theirs. But his, his recollections, things from then later on oral history, information about Charlottesville and whatever, all of those kinds of things to put them together to try to do a family saga of enslaved people. Now we don't have this very often. Certainly not in history. We have fictional um, family sagas, uh, slave family sagas, uh, and I thought that, well, this is a family. It's something that they're a group of people that people have been interested in because of Tom and Sally, and I have to tell you, and when I first started to write this book, I thought, I'm not going to write very much about Sally Hemings at all. I'm sick of Sally. Um, I know I don't, I don't want to deal with that too much, but that was crazy. Uh, it was sort of a reaction to just the intense focus on Tom and Sally, and, and we'll have questions, and I don't mind you asking me about it. I'm not, I'm not saying don't ask me about them, but I really thought there are other people in her family who had interesting lives and things about them that illustrated a great deal about slavery and life at Monticello that I wanted to have out. Uh, and, but once I reconciled myself to the fact that I was going to write about her <laughs> and I had to write about her, then the process, everything went more smoothly. So I sat down to write. Uh, it's a very long book. You can see it here. It's a long book, but I am told it is a readable book, <laughs> and um, it's divided into three sections. Each one of them, you know, kind of stand on their own. So, so I'm, I'm encouraging you to read the whole thing, but it, you don't have to. I mean, there are different sections that you could, that you get something out of each, each one of them. The first section, called Origins, introduces the Hemings family, talking about Elizabeth Hemings, who is the matriarch of the family, born in 1735, uh, to an Englishman and a woman who was described as a full-blooded African. Uh, we don't know lots about Elizabeth Hemings, so the first chapter really is called Young Elizabeth's World. It's really explaining about what life was like in Virginia in the 1730s and the development of slavery during that time period and the rules and the laws of slavery that kept her enslaved. Uh, Virginia followed the rule part of sequitur ventrum, meaning mainly you were what your mother was. This was a departure from the English tradition, which said that you are what your father was. And you can think a little bit about how that rule um, helped the development of slavery, uh, to say that 
you know, slavery goes through the mother, not through the father. And this concern that males obviously can have more children than women can have and whose sexuality is not as greatly policed as women's sexuality would produce a large class of mixed-race free people uh, if they followed the English rule. And so they went to a different rule. Maryland, for a time, it was the opposite. It, they kept the English rule, and then, and then they switched later on. But those kind, how law, it's interesting to see how law is essential to this process of shaping slavery and shaping and consequently shaping people's attitudes about um, not just slaves, but black people. And we'll talk about that in a little, in, in a little bit. Um, so Elizabeth Hemings, even though her father wanted to purchase her, um, the man who owned her, Francis Epps, refused to sell her and is sort of out of her life. She grows up in the Epps household. It's a famous family, an old family in Virginia and then comes under the ownership of a man named John Wales, who was uh, an English immigrant uh, when he married Martha Epps, one of the Epps' daughters. And she comes under his ownership when she's about 12 years old. I have a chapter about John Wales, who uh, would go on to become Jefferson's father-in-law, because, as I'm sure some of you people may know, um, John Wales and Elizabeth Hemings had six children together, and the youngest one, Sarah, uh, Sally um, is the one is the one is the most famous of those children. Um, he had a daughter named Martha, who grew up to marry Thomas Jefferson, and that's how the Hemings family comes to uh, Monticello as part of the inheritance of Jefferson's wife. Um, and so we have the situation where Jefferson is married to this woman, who has these six siblings, half siblings, who are slaves. Uh, something that's difficult for us to wrap our minds around. But this was, again, something that was not uncommon during the time of slavery when you have uh, men and women in close proximity to one another you can, and men who have control over the bodies of women. There's going to be rape. There's going to be people who actually make a connection to each other. Uh, and that's, there's going to be mixing, as there has been in every slave society that's ever existed. Every, I mean, in Hebrew law and Roman law and Greek law, there are rules about how you handle the offspring. So you know that this is something of, of these types of, uh, of unions. So this is something that's prevalent, and this is one of the hazards, you could say, of that business. And, and surely um, the Hemingses are there. Sure enough, the Hemingses come to Monticello as the half, enslaved half-sisters, half-siblings of Jefferson's wife. They are installed as house servants. Jefferson has a manservant, a man named Jupiter Evans, who's often figured in Jefferson uh, biographies, who had been his companion since boyhood. In fact, he may have been the model for that book that I talked about before. Um, we believe that Jefferson's, uh, actually Jupiter's mother, may have been Jefferson's wet nurse because Jane Jefferson, Jefferson's mother, there's some indication that she did not feed her own children, and Jefferson and Jupiter were exactly the same age, and they were companions, and that's, that's the way they did. And it's all of the, the companions to Jefferson and his siblings tended to be the exact same age as they were. So they were, it was called being one year's child with someone uh, if the mother suckled both the slave child and the, um, the master's um, uh, child as well. So he replaces Jupiter Evans with Robert Hemings, Sally Hemings' his older brother. Robert is 12 at the point. So a 30-year-old man is replaced with a 12-year-old who then begins to travel around with Jefferson 
Uh, he's in, with him in Philadelphia when he signs the Declaration of Independence. And it's like a manservant to him. You've got to figure, I mean, a 12-year-old manservant. Jefferson probably did as much, you know, teaching him how to do stuff than actually being a, a, a manservant to him. But it's the beginning of a web of relationships. I talk about this because Sally Hemings, it doesn't make any sense to think about Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson just in a binary relationship to one another. They are a part of a family, of a web of relationships that make sense <laughs> to these people in that particular time. He knows her not just to her, he knows her brothers and her sisters, and he has a particular relationship and connections to them that, as I said, are like a web, and not just binary relationships from one to the other. So the first section of this book sets up their life at Monticello. Um, Jefferson, as I said, makes Robert Hemings his manservant. James Hemings, as he gets to be older, begins to play this role as well. Uh, Martin Hemings, the older half-brother of, of Sally Hemings, is the butler at Monticello. The men are given these sort of privileges. They're allowed to go off and work on their own and keep their money, which was actually against the law. Slaves are not supposed to hire their own time, uh, but he let them do that. Uh, the women were kept out of the fields at harvest time. Uh, everybody had to go and pitch in to help bring in the harvest, but not the Hemings women. They didn't go into the fields. They were kept in the house, and they sewed, and they baked cakes. They did things that women, what Jefferson's conception of feminine was. They, he constructed them along the lines of European women, which is interesting, of course, because African women worked in the fields. If they had been back in Africa, men and women worked in the fields, and in some places, field work was what women did. It wasn't seen as unfeminine, but Jefferson saw women in the fields as being unfeminine, and so therefore the Hemings women were kept out of the fields and did more domestic things at home. Um, the first section of the book ends with Martha Jefferson's death in 1782, something that devastated uh, Jefferson. She died and from complications from childbearing. Uh, through 10 years of marriage, she had six pregnancies. Uh, we think perhaps maybe one miscarriage. There's some indication that she might have had one. So she was pregnant or, you know, feeding a child or whatever for her entire marriage, which is not uncommon. That's what uh, people did in the 18th century when you didn't have effective birth control. Um, and she apparently was not really equipped I mean, childbearing was difficult for her. After almost every one of her pregnancies, she was almost at death's door. And with the last one, um, she did not recover. Jefferson, as I said, was devastated by this. Um, probably, I suggest, in the middle of the, in the book, you know, a combination of real solid grief, but also perhaps a little guilt, too, because very often doctors would tell, even in the 18th century, they would tell husbands, you know, you, you can't do this. Uh, you know, she is not equipped. And we don't know that any doctor Jefferson, but it is something that you have to consider because there are other letters, there are other instances where doctors did say that. And Jefferson was as smart as any doctor who um, you know, would have been in Virginia at that time period. But there was not a, 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 a sense that men in the 18th century deprived themselves of sexual congress with their wives, that this was just a part of life. Um, but nevertheless, it, it was clear he, he was devastated uh, by this. Um, the deathbed scene has the Hemingses around the bed. Other people, Jefferson's overseer, 
uh, tells, a tells a story about this, and this is part of the Hemings family story as well, um, that when Martha was dying, the Hemings women were around her, and at one point she gave Sally Hemings a, a bell as a memento. Sally would have been about eight or nine at that time period. Um, and um, after the death, Jefferson decides that he's going to take a commission to Paris, which he had declined on a couple of other occasions because his wife was ill. So the first section of the book, Origins, ends. I have them all set at Monticello and you know what happened there and establishing the Hemings' position in this place. And the second chapter of the book is called The Vaunted Scene of Europe, which is, for me, was the most fun to write because it was the one that I knew the least about we talked about research and how fun it is that this is, that's why she's a law professor. We're law professors and you know, research and all that kind of stuff is, is uh, we do this for, uh, for kicks. Um, <laughs> this was, it was interesting to me because it's fun to go into a, a world that you don't know anything about and try to bring it out. And so the second section, the vaunted scene of Europe, has uh, Jefferson going to Paris with James Hemings, who is 19 at this point, and his daughter Martha. It's very confusing. I do have a family tree here, but there are a lot of Marthas and Marys, and everybody's naming one another after one another. So Martha's mother and grandmother were, all, were named Martha. So Thomas and his daughter Martha and James go to Paris. Uh, James Hemings is 19, and Jefferson wants to have him trained as a chef because Jefferson wanted a, he admired French cooking, and so he wanted a chef for Monticello. So he takes James there. They uh, stay at a couple of residences um, before they settle at the Hotel de Langeac, which is a spectacular place. I have the elevation of it in the, um, uh, in the I have a picture of, uh, well, it's a painting of it uh, in the book. Uh, Three-story house, fort with a basement, uh, a mezzanine floor of bedrooms, just the most sumptuous house Jefferson probably ever lived in, even including Monticello. Um, it, was a, it was a gorgeous place. So you can, and I ask you, and we have this young man from the wilds of Virginia, uh, James Hemings, not to mention Jefferson and how he's experiencing all of this, who is in the largest city in the world at this point, 700,000 people in Paris, a very sophisticated place, crowded place, very, very different from the world that he knew uh, back in Virginia. He begins to apprentice at um, the homes, some of the best homes in France. He's in, at Chantilly. Uh, which is the, the seat of the Prince de Conde, who was a member of the royal family. Monticello could fit into Chantilly, I don't know how many times. They had a stable for 258 horses um, to give you a sense of the opulence of, of the place. Um, one interesting point um, that James Hemings and Sally Hemings learn is that France is pretty much free soil. Um, there's a saying that there are no slaves in France. Uh, it was not strictly true. It wasn't a matter of just setting foot on French soil and you became free. Slaves had to petition for their freedom. But every petition that had been filed in the 18th century was granted as a matter of course because they did not want slavery in the city. And they didn't want it on, in the French, uh, on French soil, actually, actually in the, on the continent. They didn't mind it in the colonies. <laughs> the colonies were very, very rich. You know, Martinique, Saint-Domingue, you know, the, the jewel of, of their... Um, of their colonies was giving people back in France lots and lots of money, but they didn't want, they did not want slavery on on the continent in France proper. So James and Sally Hemings, when she gets there, um, could have filed petitions for freedom 
uh, all the while that they're there. And near the end of Jefferson's stay, there's an indication that James Hemings is preparing to do that. He hires a tutor to teach him proper French grammar, which it's hard to understand why he would have done. He wasn't hiring a tutor and paying him money so he could go back to Virginia. Um, but he's, he's worked with Jefferson. He's paid a salary. Um, once he becomes fr- uh, the, the chef de cuisine, uh, at Jefferson's um, 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 home, uh, and then a couple of, after a couple of years, Sally Hemings comes over with Jefferson's daughter. Uh, he has left two daughters back home. One of them dies of whooping cough, and he says, no, I, I want my other daughter with me, and send her with a careful Negro woman, Isabel, Isabel Hearn, who is about 28 years old at this point. So he was thinking of an older woman to accompany his daughter and who is living at Eppington with his sister-in-law, um, and instead, Elizabeth Epps sends Sally Hemings, who is 14 years old. Now, Sally Hemings, we've got to keep all these things in mind. Sally Hemings is Elizabeth Epps' half-sister, and she's Polly's half-aunt. So this is this weird family configuration. Elizabeth and Francis, and again, the Eppses have been with the, the Hemings and Epps connection goes back to the 1730s, well before Jefferson. Um, so... She sends Sally Hemings over with Polly Jefferson, Mary. Polly's a nickname for Mary, inexplicably. Um, and, but it is, I mean, not just in their family, but everywhere. So he sends them over. She stays for a couple of weeks with Abigail Adams, who in the book appears somewhat frightening figure. Um, I kind of worried about that because I know Abigail is beloved of so many people. And I kind of tap dance all over her in this, but, uh, but I think with good reason. Um, so she stays with Sally Hemings a couple of weeks. I mean, Sally Hemings stays with Abigail Adams and John for a couple of weeks. And then she goes on to Paris, where she, too, uh, is paid wages for a time and then is not paid wages. The major thing that happens to her that um, I talk about in the book is that she is inoc- has to be inoculated against smallpox, which was a very, very scary process. They actually gave you smallpox during that live smallpox, and she had to be sent away for 40 days into the, onto the outskirts of Paris. Uh, Forty days, I found out that it's a biblical thing. You know, it has nothing to do with anything medical. It's just 40 days in the body. Jesus, you know, it's 40 days. So she goes out for 40 days and um, is treated by Dr. Sutton, Robert Sutton, who is a member of one of the famous families of inoculators. He was sort of a celebrity doctor-type person. Jefferson paid about $1,000 for this. Um, because it wasn't just the inoculation, but it was also being treated in this resort-type place where you, um, where you recovered from this and had servants and people who, who looked after you. He was also the doctor who was brought in to try to, to uh, save King Louis XV, who died of smallpox. So she got to meet one of the most famous doctors, people in the world, although she probably may not have known the significance of that. But So she goes through this ordeal, comes back to the Hotel Alangiac, and begins to be paid. She gets a salary, uh, as her brother does. When I, I've been looking at the memorandum book for many years and s- sort of seeing Jefferson's listings of his payments of his servants, and James and Sally are at the bottom, and then the garçon de cuisine maybe is the same, getting paid the same as Sally Hemings, and I'm thinking, ah, see, there he is, paying you know James and Sally less than everybody else because they're slaves and blah, 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 even though in French soil, on French soil, they, you know, he, they had an opportunity to be free. And then when I was working on the book, I went, wait a second, I shouldn't be looking at this, 
you know, vertically, you know, comparing them to these other people, I should be looking at it horizontally. I should be looking at what are other chefs and what are other femme de chambre making. And it turns out he was paying them more than the typical chef was being paid. The typical chef de cuisine in France during this time was paid 200 to 250 livres per year. James Hemmings was paid 288 livres per year. Um, the typical femme de chambre um, was paid 80 to 120 livres per year. Sally Hemmings was paid at the rate of 144 livres per year. So what I had thought was a real deprivation was not. They were getting paid, and they were getting paid a lot. Um, he overpaid everybody, not just them, but the other folks as well, which was another reason uh, he sort of came to not so great an end. But I, I showed these to people who work with these, with wages at that time period. He's saying, gosh, he's paying these people a lot of money. Um, and I don't know whether he just asked the wrong people about what was supposed to be paid, they were being paid, or whether he was trying to keep up with the French aristocrats. There were some people, the, the highest I ever saw was a chef who was getting paid like 300 livres per year, which is still not, you know, that much more than 288. But this guy, I mean, we're talking about Jefferson was wealthy, but he was not as wealthy as French aristocrats. So they were getting paid. So it, it began to change my understanding about who these people were in this place. There was also a black community there, which I had not thought about, uh, there being a black community in Paris. Uh, not a large community, but a one that was pretty active in speaking with other members of the community, letting them know about the freedom principle. And so I began to see them as having, I understood they were not in Virginia. I mean, they're often written of as if they're still in Virginia. But instead, you have a young man and a young woman who are being paid wages very well in a place where the law was on their side. And the story ends, this chapter ends with Sally Hemings um, with the confrontation that Madison Hemings said happened between his parents when Sally Hemings said she did not want to come back home because she did not want to be re-enslaved and she was evidently concerned about her children being slaves. Um, and Jefferson reassured her that if she came back, her children, they would not be live in slavery. I mean, they, when they got to be 21, when they were grown, they would leave as free people. She would have a nice life at Monticello, and so she decides to come back home. Now, this was one of the, this has always been a problem for me about Sally Hemings before I started looking at this book, because I thought, you know, why would you come back to the United States when you had a shot at being a free person. There with your brother, because she's not by herself. The other thing is, people think about her there by herself. Her brother is 24 years old. As I said, he's hired a tutor. He's had free movement in Paris. Even before he came to Paris, he, as I said, used to go off and work on his own. This was a person who knew how to maneuver in the world. Why would she believe him? Why would she come back? And um, he says something else, too. He says that Sally Hemings trusted Jefferson implicitly. Now, that was also a problem, because you think, okay, now, why would you do that? Um, but the more I began to look at the family and to look at how he had dealt with the family, what she'd seen him do, uh, plus the fact that she's 16 years old. She's 16 years old, and, you know, she, she had no women, as far as I know, She's had no women or people around them to say, look, you know, he may be saying this now, but, you know, anything, but, you know, <laughs> girlfriend, 
Now he may be saying this now. <laughs> he may be saying, but you know what? He could die on the way. I mean, you know, anything could happen. But there was something else, too. I began to see how intensely involved this family was with one another. The Hemingses were, they're a close-knit family. I mean, one of the reasons I had to have a family tree in there is that they're all naming each other after one another. You know, brothers name their children after, you know, their, sis their siblings and uncles and all this kind of thing. This is, it would be interesting to think of being 16 years old. Okay, you got this person who you have seen treat your family in a particular way. He's been encouraging you and your family to think of them yourself as different than everybody else. Right? He's been doing that. He's been setting that up. Um, and at the same time, you have a mother and siblings and people back home. And it's, this is where you think about the difference between enslaved men and enslaved women. How women, white and black, from that time period and even till today, are socialized to think about family and to have think about responsibilities to family. And um, it's, it would be difficult, perhaps, to leave your mother behind and your siblings and so forth. When slaves ran away, Phil, I uh, quote Philip Morgan, who, who studied this quite a bit, um, when slaves ran away, when male slaves ran away, they tended to run by themselves. When female slaves ran away, they ran with their kids, which is why they got caught. Uh, they typically got caught. You, you know, run away with four or five people, little kids coming along, that's not, but they didn't want to leave them. And it was harder to leave them. So it, it made me, again, if I wanted other people to see her as an individual, as a person, I had to sort of step back from my sociological or my preferences about, because <laughs> if, if I had written this story, they would have stayed in Paris. No, I mean, you know, if I could have said they would have stayed in Paris, Jefferson would have said, you know, I'll help you when you're here, and I'll, I'll help you. Because he was just going home for a leave of absence. He was going to leave her and his daughters there and come back. But he could have said, you know, all right, I'll help set you up, and then I could have written a book about the Hemingses and gone to Paris and seen their descendants there or something like that. Not, and that's not the only reason I, I would have wished. But that's, that's what would have made more sense to me. But that's not what, that isn't what happened. They came back. And the second section ends with them coming back, and then I go to On the Mountain, and I begin to talk about other Hemingses come to the, fray, come to the fore, because Sally Hemings, James Hemings continues to work for Jefferson. He's paid as a free white worker. Jefferson continues to give him spending money, continues to have his clothes made for him by his own tailor and everything, and then eventually they make an agreement. If James trains another person to become uh, a chef, Jefferson said, I spent a lot of money on you, to have you trained as a chef. And he could have said, well, yeah, you know, I spent a lot of money working without getting paid. But, uh, no, but he didn't in the years before he got to Paris. But we could call ourselves even on this point. But that's not how he saw this. So he agrees to train someone to become a chef. And he trains his brother James to be a chef. And then Jefferson gives him freedom. And he embarks upon a life of travel. Um, he apparently goes back to France, and then the last, one of the last letters about him is that he's planning a trip to go to Spain at this point. So he's traveling all around. Jefferson's trying to get him to settle down. Um, and I talk about other members of the family come to fore. 
Joseph Fawcett, who was the blacksmith at Monticello, John Hemmings, if you've ever met to Monticello, I'm sure they talk quite a bit, and I know they talk quite a bit about him because of his furniture and some of the woodwork that he did at Monticello is still there. This is Sally Hemmings' youngest half-brother, uh, Elizabeth Hemmings' youngest child. And Sally Hemmings recedes in the background because people stop talking about her. Uh, when they get back in 1790, there are only a couple of references to her in Jefferson's uh, letters. There are references to her sisters, to her brothers, everybody. She is pretty much invisible in the record. Um, I do, at some point, began to talk about um, uh, the children, Beverly, Harriet, Madison, and Eston. They are um, one of the things I discovered working um, on this particular book um, I had seen these letters before, but I hadn't really made the kind of connection. Jefferson had uh, a retreat, Poplar Forest, um, that he really built in earnest after his retirement um, because during his retirement, everybody sort of descended on him at Monticello, which is, again, was another reason he lost a lot of money because people would show up, dozens of people would show up and stay for weeks and eat and bring their horses and bring servants, and he would feed all of them, and they would just stay there and never leave, and it was like a hotel. And so finally, the person who, was, who did not like conf confrontation as much as he didn't said, okay, I'll leave Monticello to you, and he goes to Poplar Forest pretty much. Well, there are lots of letters to his overseer where he'll say, um, I'm, coming to Mont I'm coming to Poplar Forest with Johnny Hemmings and his two assistants. He had apprenticed Beverly, Madison, and Eston on their time period to John Hemmings. So his two assistants are his two sons, would be John Hemmings and either Beverly or Madison or Madison and Eston. And so I hadn't thought about this before, but they spent a lot of time in Jefferson's presence. Uh, so Madison Hemmings, you know, people think of him as if somebody he's distant is not around Jefferson, but Jefferson goes to Poplar Forest and stays there for weeks at a time. And it's a very small place if you've ever been there. Um, and the part of their apprenticeship is working on the house. Um, he had them apprenticed as carpenters. He was a woodworker himself. He, he made furniture, and he liked to be among his carpenters and um, his mechanics uh, was, the, was the phrase that was used. So it made me think differently about his connection to them. So I talk about that connection, um, John Hemmings, and then the story ends very badly because Jefferson... Uh, in 1826, dies $107,000 in debt. $107,000 in debt in 1826 is a lot of money. It's millions of dollars. Um, the place has to be auctioned off, everything in it, and the people as well. He frees five people in his will, um, Madison and Eston, the two youngest children. The two older children had run away as white people, and if you go away as white people, you don't want freedom papers because then that would sort of be a hint, a big hint, <laughs> that you were part black. And even if by law, by Virginia law, they were legally white. Seven-eighths, if you're seven-eighths white, you were white. Uh, there was not, one drop comes later on. So they're considered white, but still, socially, that would have been a problem. Even if the law said they were white, if people knew that they were part black, they would not... Um, they would not be received in the world in the same way. So those two run off to live as white people. Madison and Eston are freed. Sally Hemings is, the term they use is given her time. They move into Charlottesville uh, to free Sally Hemings. She was 50, she's over 
to free a slave over 45, you had to say how you were going to take care of this person. But in below 21 and over 45, you had to say, here's how I'm going to take care of this person. He also had to petition the legislature to allow um, an enslaved person to remain in the state because if, they, if he didn't do that, the person would be re-enslaved after a year. So I don't think it was not possible that he would, at the end of his life, write down in a document, here's Sally Hemings, whom I'm freeing, here's how I'm going to take care of her for the rest of her life, and please let her stay. I mean, it would have been an admission uh, that everything that people were saying was true. Instead, she's just let go, and they saw that, and she moves into town. In the 1830 census, she's described as a free white woman. Um, in a special census in 1833, she describes herself as a free mulatto who had been um, emancipated in 1826. Um, that was a census that was done to go and ask black people if they wanted to go back to Africa. <laughs> because after Nat Turner, the Virginians became very, very scary about what was going on with enslaved people and free blacks, and they wanted to get them out of the state. So they go around and ask for uh, ask people to uh, to voluntarily go back to Africa. And you think about that, you know, this woman who is one quarter black. Um, it would have made more sense to say, you know, go back to Lancaster, England, or someplace. Certainly not Africa. Uh, but she doesn't go back, and she dies in 1834. And her her children move out to Ohio after this. And the book ends with the story of Elizabeth Hemings's uh, one of her grandsons, Joe Fawcett who is freed in Jefferson's will, but his wife and his children aren't freed. And he asks members of the white community to buy his children and promises to purchase them when he saves enough money to do that. And he's able to do that with all but three of the children. Two of them, two daughters are taken out of the, the state and we don't know, out of the county, and we don't know where they went. But his youngest son, Peter, um, the man who owns him refuses, reneges. He refuses to sell him to his parents, even though his parents had the money uh, for it. And so they hang around to try to persuade this man. They don't persuade him, and eventually they go out to Ohio. Um, there's something of a happy reunion because Peter joins them there when he's an older, older man. He becomes, a re he becomes a minister, and he becomes a prominent caterer, and the family is very much involved in the Underground Railroad. Um, shepherding people to from from the south uh, to the north to freedom, and I thought it was appropriate to end there because that story really, I think, tells the story of the endurance of this family um, and the connectedness of this family that he never gives up, um, that he saves his money, works, buys his children back, and they don't break faith with him either. The son remembers, and he, when he gets to be an older man and is able to purchase his freedom, he joins his family. And that is sort of the end of this family saga in slavery. Um, this book is already very long. And at some point, I told Norton that you know I was supposed to take them up through the 19th century. And I said, look, I can't, I'm not going to be able to do that in one book. So in the second volume of this book, I will follow the family through the 19th century and sort of end. I'm not coming up until today, but end, end around World War I, when really the world, it's the modern world, and everything, women cut their hair and their flappers, and it's all, it's a different, it's a different, different age for, uh, for this. But I, I really wanted to end with that story of perseverance and endurance, because I think it symbolizes the Hemings family story and why I think it was something that was a story that was worthwhile for me to tell. So with that long uh, exposition, I will take questions. Thank you.
you have a question, if you come up here or, or at least stand up so that we and speak so 